Previously on Breakdown. I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval and he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? I remember looking at Mark and I said, Mark, you can't possibly think we're going to pull this off. Like that call was crazy. And he looked at me and just started shaking his head and he was like, no, Cass, you know, he knows it's over. He knows he lost, but we're going to keep trying. There's some good options out there still. We're going to keep trying. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs voted male. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. <laughs> also, if Trump is losing by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. <laughs> no, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. You can say this about John Eastman. He's prophetic. Eastman, of course, was one of President Donald Trump's lawyers in the weeks after the November 2020 election. In our last episode, we told you about emails Eastman had sent to Trump's legal team in which a federal judge in California ordered turned over to the House Select Committee under the crime fraud exception. The news organization Politico got its hands on some of those emails, some from Eastman and some from Kenneth Chesbro, another one of Trump's attorneys. The emails show how the legal team was doing everything it could to overturn President Joe Biden's victory and how they were counting on Georgia as one way to get there. All these exchanges were made just before Trump filed a federal lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Atlanta contesting the election. And the attorneys fretted that the president would sign a verification of the facts contained in the complaint, of facts that weren't true. This led Eastman on December 31, 2020, to write to members of Trump's legal team, quote, I have no doubt that an aggressive DA or U.S. attorney someplace will go after both the president and his lawyers once all the dust settles on this. Tamar, would you characterize Fonnie Willis as an aggressive DA? Many would certainly say that. And so far, Willis has gotten both Eastman and Chesbro to appear before the special purpose grand jury investigating Trump and his allies. But just how much information they were willing to provide to jurors is unknown. Welcome back to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Breakdown Podcast. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. For the last month, the special grand jury has been on a break for the election. That's meant no new subpoenas and no high-profile witnesses coming in to testify. But there still has been some news. Local courts in places like Virginia, South Carolina, and Illinois have been hearing challenges from witnesses who were subpoenaed earlier this fall. And then there's the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard perhaps the most aggressive challenge to the special grand jury from South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. We'll catch you up on all the latest as our special grand jury reconvenes. This is Episode 18, Eastman's Prophecy of Season 9 of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see 
do and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. In episode 17, we told you about the emails from John Eastman that had been shaken loose for the January 6th committee by federal judge David O. Carter. Four of those emails apparently showed that Trump had been told by his lawyers that his claims of widespread voter fraud were false, but that he signed his name to a filing anyway, verifying specific numbers of allegedly miscast ballots in Georgia. One of our legal analysts, Georgia State University constitutional law professor Anthony Michael Kreiss, had this to say about it. So I think what we have in some respects is a kind of smoking gun evidence of an intent to solicit election fraud in a way that we had a lot of circumstantial evidence before suggesting that the former president knew better, but now we really have it in writing that he in fact knew that the allegations he was making about the state of the elections in Georgia were false. Judge Carter wrote the emails are, quote, sufficiently related to and in furtherance of a conspiracy to defraud the United States. And now, thanks to Politico, we have more details on what was being said by Trump's lawyers. In one exchange, Chesbro laid out how Trump's legal team was counting on appealing to Justice Clarence Thomas as they fought to prevent the election results from being certified. He wrote on December 31st, quote, We want to frame things so that Thomas could be the one to issue some sort of stay or other circuit justice opinion saying Georgia is in legitimate doubt. He said Thomas assigned to hear emergency requests from cases out of the federal appeals court in Atlanta, would be, quote, our only chance to get a favorable judicial opinion by January 6th, which might hold up the Georgia count in Congress. Eastman responded that he thought he agreed with Chesbro, and he suggested that a favorable ruling from Justice Thomas or others would embolden the Georgia legislature to block Joe Biden's victory. That same day, Chesbro sent another email summarizing the Trump team's strategy. Quote, If we can get this case pending before the Supreme Court by January 5th, ideally with something positive written by a judge or justice, hopefully Thomas, I think it's our best shot at holding up the count of a state in Congress. The appeals from Trump's allies didn't appear to move the Supreme Court, which rejected the election challenges brought before it. But these emails, legal experts have told us, could have an enduring impact on the Fulton County investigation. So this is pretty powerful evidence that will be admissible in both Georgia and a federal prosecution. That's Nick Ackerman, a New York-based attorney who was a Watergate prosecutor when Richard Nixon was president. He's following the special grand jury investigation in Fulton County very closely. Ackerman cited another Eastman email in which he acknowledged that Trump knew that specific numbers of fraudulent ballots in Georgia cited in a federal court case weren't actually fraudulent. But basically, he knew that was false, yet he went ahead and swore under oath on a verification that that information was accurate and filed it in federal court for another lawsuit. Now, what's significant about that is that this statement is admissible against Donald Trump at a criminal trial, either in Georgia or in Washington, D.C., if it's brought by the Department of Justice. 
as a statement in furtherance of the conspiracy to overturn what, you know, they all knew was a lawful election win by Joe Biden. Um, and in so far as Georgia's concerned, I mean, the admissibility here is bolstered by the fact that John Eastman at the time was one of Donald Trump's lawyers. And under Georgia law alone, that makes his statement admissible because Georgia law is pretty clear that an attorney has the implied authority to bind his client by statements or admissions of fact made within the scope of his authority. And here, Eastman was claiming that all of this was covered by attorney-client privilege because he represented Donald Trump. And the judge, Carter, in California, found that these statements actually were made in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy. And in fact, that the attorney-client privilege, the exception to it for statements made in furtherance of a fraud or crime, essentially exempted this email from the attorney-client privilege. Ackerman says the emails could also play into a potential charge under Georgia's anti-racketeering RICO law. What you can do with this is also use it to tie into the January 2nd call from Trump to the Secretary of State, Raffensperger, where Trump tells Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. I mean, this email was done on December 31st. The call to Raffensperger is on January 2nd. And so when you put the two things together, I mean, it's just more evidence of Trump's intent to defraud, his attempt to undermine the election in Georgia and generally the election in the United States, because they also talk in some of these emails about the Supreme Court and how they can somehow get an opinion or a statement from Justice Thomas that would give some kind of ammunition for Vice President Pence to basically ignore the Electoral College vote. So this is, these emails are extremely significant. And I think when you look at it from the legal standpoint, they're really significant because they come in as admissions against Donald Trump and others who were part of this conspiracy. He says it's all about the evidence. I still think that the best case here, at least on everything relating to uh, Donald Trump's plot to overturn the election, uh, really centers in Georgia, because that's where you've got the best evidence. I mean, look at the, the best evidence they've got is this tape recording from January 2nd between Brad Raffensperger and Trump. I mean, asking him to go find the votes, trying to play on the fact that he's a fellow Republican. I mean, that, when you put it in the context of everything else, I mean, the star witness in Georgia is going to be Donald Trump. Ackerman thinks the emails could also put some of Trump's attorneys in legal jeopardy, potentially as co-conspirators. We also asked Ackerman to weigh in on Eastman's very meta email that Trump and his legal team could be pursued by an aggressive DA or U.S. attorney. Well, I think what he's doing is he's acknowledging the fact that what they're doing is criminal that they know that they've got a real problem here and what they're doing, but they're doing it anyway, and they did it anyway. I mean, even after these emails, they still filed this declaration from Trump and, you know, kind of on one hand acknowledged that what they were doing was criminal, but they did it anyway. So, sure, I mean, I think that all of these attorneys that are involved, certainly Cheeseboro and 
Eastman, who come across with some very specific uh, statements here, I think are really in the soup on this. Ackerman says it's likely Chesbro and Eastman never thought they'd be in the position they're in today. I don't think they ever thought in a million years that these emails would be made public. They thought they could hide behind the attorney-client privilege, and they never thought that there would be an aggressive push by the January 6th committee to get all of John Eastman's emails. I mean, I think they it's like Richard Nixon in Watergate. He just thought no one would ever, you know, ever see the light of day of his tape recordings in the Oval Office. We need to make note that former President Trump issued a statement in October in response to the House Select Committee investigation. It's in a letter written to committee chairman Benny Thompson. It begins with, in all capital letters, and ends with Trump's trademark exclamation point. The presidential election of 2020 was rigged and stolen. Trump tells Thompson, quote, You have not gone after the people that created the fraud, but rather great American patriots who questioned it, as is their constitutional right. These people have had their lives ruined as your committee sits back and basks in the glow. In an attachment labeled Georgia, the statement says at least 10,300 and maybe as many as 35,000 illegally cast votes were from people who voted in the wrong county. Also, Almost 44,000 ballots from, quote, Facebook-funded drop boxes were counted in DeKalb County that violated chain of custody rules. And he says, quote, poll workers were caught scanning ballots multiple times on camera in Fulton County. Ballot images confirmed at least 3,390 duplicate votes were counted for Joe Biden. We also have a significant update on Senator Lindsey Graham and his quest to avoid testifying before the special grand jury. The Supreme Court issued a unanimous ruling on November 1st that cleared the way for the South Carolina Republican to be questioned later this month. You may remember that Fulton prosecutors want to ask the Trump ally about two phone calls he placed to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger after the 2020 elections. There's significant disagreement over what exactly Graham was implying during the conversations, which hinged on the procedures for processing absentee ballots. In an unsigned order, the high court lifted a stay that Justice Clarence Thomas had temporarily placed on Graham's testimony late last month. The paragraph-long order notes that the Constitution's speech or debate clause shields Graham from having to answer questions about informal fact-finding or other legislative activity he's been worried might come up. And the justices underscore that lower courts had affirmed that Graham, while testifying, can bring up any disputed issues that may arrive before a U.S. District Court judge. Because of that, they said, quote, a stay or injunction is not necessary to safeguard the senator's speech or debate clause immunity. The order is undoubtedly a victory for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. She's argued that Graham is a necessary and material witness and that delaying his testimony would harm the entire investigation, including closing off potential new routes of inquiry. Graham's underlying legal challenge is still technically alive, but it could take months for the Supreme Court to weigh in on the merits which would be too late for the senator. Graham's currently scheduled to testify before the grand jury on November 17th. So mark your calendars. Graham's appearance on the 17th is likely to be a circus, not unlike what we saw in August when Rudy Giuliani came to Atlanta to offer his testimony. And yes, we're expecting Graham to show. Remember, 
a witness who ignores a grand jury subpoena could face a warrant for their arrest. For his part, Graham has indicated he's not going to roll over. His office issued a statement not long after the Supreme Court issued its order, suggesting he won't be shy about citing legislative privilege during questioning. Quote, Today, the U.S. Supreme Court confirmed that the Constitution's speech or debate clause applies here. They also affirmed that Senator Graham may return to the district court if the district attorney tries to ask questions about his constitutionally protected activities. The senator's legal team intends to engage with the district attorney's office on next steps to ensure respect for this constitutional immunity. But the point is that earlier, Graham seemed quite confident he was going to win this legal battle. Yeah, I will fight this. I think this is a constitutional overreach, and I'm confident the courts will take care of it. But he lost, with the court unanimously rejecting his request to stay the proceedings. Back in August, Atlanta-based U.S. District Court Judge Lee Martin May ruled that Graham could not be asked about his legislative motivations and his work on Capitol Hill, but that he could be questioned on political issues, including any communications or coordination with the Trump campaign, public statements he made about Georgia's 2020 elections, and any alleged effort to encourage or cajole Raffensperger to throw out ballots or alter Georgia's election practices. Graham has repeatedly said he did nothing wrong in his phone calls to the Secretary of State's office, but New York Attorney Nick Ackerman isn't convinced that's the case. And he says Graham ought to be careful when he testifies before the grand jury. Ackerman points to the timing of Graham's phone calls, one in mid-November, and almost three weeks later, Trump's phone call to Raffensperger. I mean, it's pretty obvious that when Lindsey Graham wasn't successful, that Donald Trump brought it on himself to try and do the same thing. I mean, the two phone calls really dovetail together very nicely as evidentiary pieces of intent on both individuals' part. And I'm sure that the reason that Lindsey Graham is fighting this so hard is because ultimately he's really going to have to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege before that grand jury. If I were his lawyer, I certainly would strongly urge him to do that because I think he could go very quickly from being a witness to a target in a nanosecond by just testifying. So I think that's the reason why he's been so aggressively fighting this thing. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The same day the Supreme Court ruled on Graham's case, a federal judge in Washington let another case move forward. This is entirely separate from the special grand jury investigation, but it involves many key players from the Fulton County probe. Judge Beryl Howell of the U.S. District Court in Washington rejected Rudy Giuliani's request to dismiss a defamation lawsuit filed by two Fulton County poll workers, 
Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, say their lives were upended by false allegations, spread by Giuliani and others, that they had committed fraud while doing their jobs at Atlanta State Farm Arena. Both women testified before the select committee about their experiences being subject to vitriol and threats. Here's Moss telling the committee what messages she received after Giuliani made his false claims. Yes, a, a lot of threats, um, wishing death upon me, um, telling me that you know I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. A lot of them were racist. A lot of them were just hateful. I felt horrible. I felt like it was all my fault. Like, if I would have never decided to be an elections worker, like, I could have done anything else. But that's what I decided to do. And now people are lying and spreading rumors and lies and attacking my mom. I just felt bad for my mom and I felt horrible for picking this job and being the one that always wants to help and always there, and never missing not one election. I just felt like it was, it was my fault for putting my family in this situation. We've told you that the special grand jury has recently taken particular interest in the efforts of at least three people including Kanye West's former publicist and an Illinois police chaplain, to cajole Freeman into making a false confession. Freeman and Moss filed their lawsuit in December, accusing Giuliani and other defendants of defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and civil conspiracy. They're seeking unspecified monetary damages. The conservative cable station, One America News Network, one of the defendants, has already reached a settlement in the case. The network even gave this extraordinary statement on air. Georgia officials have concluded that there was no widespread voter fraud by election workers who counted ballots at the State Farm Arena in November 2020. The results of this investigation indicate that Ruby Freeman and Wandria Shea Moss did not engage in ballot fraud or criminal misconduct while working at State Farm Arena on election night. When OAN reached the settlement, that left Giuliani as the only remaining defendant in the case. And on November 1st, Judge Howell ruled that the lawsuit can move forward against the former mayor of New York City. Howell said that there was, quote, ample circumstantial evidence of a civil conspiracy between Giuliani and members of the Trump campaign to sow doubt about the 2020 election results. That included accusing Freeman and Moss of ballot stuffing and stealing votes. You might remember some of the claims that Giuliani and his former boss made about Freeman and Moss as they disputed Georgia's election results. Here's Giuliani testifying in front of Georgia lawmakers in December 2020. Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room hiding around. They look like this. They look like they're passing out dope. When you look at that rejection rate, and when you look at what you saw on the video, which to me was a smoking gun, powerful smoking gun, well, I don't, don't have to be a genius to figure out what happened. And I, I don't have to be a genius to figure out that those votes are not legitimate votes. You don't put legitimate votes under a table. No. <laughs> Wait until you throw the opposition out and in the middle of the night count them. We would have to be fools to think that. 
and Trump mentioned Freeman repeatedly during his January 2nd, 2021 phone call with Brad Raffensperger. We're so far ahead of these numbers. Even the phony ballots of, uh, of Ruby Freeman, known scammer. You know the Internet? You know what was trending on the Internet? Where's Ruby? Because they thought she'd be in jail. Where's Ruby? Um, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. That was the minimum number is 18,000 for Ruby, but they think it's probably about 56,000. But the minimum number is 18,000 on the Ruby Freeman night where she ran back in there when everybody was gone and stuffed. She stuffed the ballot boxes. Let's face it, Brad. I mean, they did it in slow motion replay magnified, right? She stuffed the ballot boxes. They were stuffed like nobody's ever seen them stuffed before. Giuliani had argued that his remarks about Freeman and Moss didn't meet the legal standard for actual malice. But Howell didn't buy it. Her ruling means Freeman and Moss's lawsuit can move to the discovery phase. That means depositions and exchanges of information. It can be a long process. But it's very notable that a federal judge believes that a reasonable jury could infer that Giuliani, Trump, and others were in cahoots to launch a misinformation campaign following the elections. And Howell just isn't any judge. She presides over the federal grand jury investigating the January 6th attack and Trump's handling of classified documents. Worth keeping an eye on, for sure. Meanwhile, the Fulton DA's office prevailed in another out-of-state witness subpoena. On November 9th, a judge in Fairfax, Virginia, rejected an attempt by former House Speaker Newt Gingrich to avoid testifying before the special grand jury. The hearing was held in a public courtroom before Circuit Judge Robert Smith. We'd like to share some of the audio from that hearing, but we learned shortly before the hearing, Smith does not allow any video or audio recording in his courtroom. We were fortunate, though, that Jamie Dupree, the wonderful Capitol Hill correspondent, covered it for us. Jamie noted that Gingrich was given no special VIP treatment. He had to wait about an hour while Judge Smith ran through a series of local criminal cases on his docket. That presented an odd juxtaposition of the former Speaker of the House sitting quietly in the courtroom, while various defendants wearing jail jumpsuits were brought in and out for their own appearances. When it was his turn, Gingrich's lawyer, John Burlingame, said Gingrich's appearance in Atlanta would be unduly burdensome and unnecessary. He said Gingrich is already scheduled to testify on November 21st before the House Select Committee and the committee could simply send a transcript of that testimony to the special grand jury. Burlingame also adopted what's become known as the Jackie Pick argument. She's the lawyer and podcaster who convinced a majority of Texas criminal appeals judges that she didn't have to honor her Fulton subpoena because the grand jury was civil and not criminal. But Judge Smith was having none of it. He directed Gingrich to testify on November 29th before the special grand jury. As he left the courthouse, Burlingame told reporters that he may appeal. Fulton prosecutors have said they want to question Gingrich about his involvement in a Trump campaign effort to air television ads in December 2020 that, quote, repeated and relied upon false claims about fraud in the 2020 election and encouraged members of the public to contact their state officials and pressure them to challenge and overturn the results of the election. Fulton prosecutors also have indicated Gingrich was involved in the plan to appoint a slate of fake Republican electors in swing states that were narrowly won by President Joe Biden. 
But the Fulton DA's office lost what could be just the first round of its attempt to get police chaplain Stephen Cliffgard Lee to come to Atlanta and testify. Prosecutors filed their out-of-state material witness subpoena in Kendall County, Illinois, where Lee lives. His case was heard November 9th before Judge Robert Pilmer. Lee, who leads a Lutheran church in suburban Chicago, was allegedly at the center of the effort to pressure poll worker Ruby Freeman to admit to committing election fraud. So it's no surprise the special grand jury wanted to hear from him. But Judge Pilmer found the facts laid out in Lee's material witness certificate were insufficient, and he denied it. Judge Pilmer dismissed the motion for the out-of-state subpoena without prejudice. That means Fulton prosecutors can try again, in this case within 30 days, and they say they will. Kendall County State's Attorney Eric Weiss, who is assisting the Fulton DA's office, said if more details can be provided, Pilmer will consider the motion once again. Depending on how this shapes up, we could see other witnesses try out this strategy, just like Gingrich and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows replicated Jackie Pick's strategy in Texas. It's also worth noting two attorneys who we know have testified before the special grand jury recently. One is a top Gingrich confidant, Atlanta attorney Randy Evans, who served as Trump's ambassador to Luxembourg and who we've interviewed for this podcast. He was named in one of the Gingrich emails released by the January 6th committee. The other attorney witness was libel lawyer Lynn Wood. He was a big purveyor of Stop the Steal rhetoric in late 2020 and hosted meetings at his South Carolina plantation with the likes of Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, and other prominent Trump supporters. After his grand jury appearance, Wood talked to our AJC colleague, Alan Judd. He said he testified for about an hour and a half and answered every question prosecutors asked him. He said the Fulton prosecutors were polite and treated him with courtesy. He also said he wouldn't divulge what questions were asked because he didn't want to breach grand jury secrecy, although witnesses are allowed to discuss their testimony. We're expecting even more key witnesses to walk through the Fulton courthouse doors in the weeks ahead. There's Graham and Gingrich, of course. Meadows is scheduled to appear on November 30th, though it's possible he files an appeal and keeps fighting his subpoena. And then there's the expected testimony of Governor Brian Kemp, whose interview had been delayed until after the election. He could feel freer to talk now that he's cruised into a second term. For sure. Election night also brought convincing victories for several Georgia officials we've talked about on this show. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Attorney General Chris Carr were both re-elected. Voters also handed a clear-cut victory to Republican Burt Jones. The state senator, who served as a fake Republican elector, will be sworn in as lieutenant governor in January. Here's what he told our colleague Maya Prabhu on election night. I feel good. You know, I mean, yeah, look, it's a year and we started in this building um, a year and four months ago or whatever it was and, you know, and been grinding, had a tough primary and, you know, had this, uh, you know, general election that was tough on everybody, I think. And, you know, and uh, it's, it's a strain. It's a strain. Uh, you know, on uh, you know, it's, it's 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 a lot of mental stuff to it. But you know, at the end of the day, glad we won. I'm excited about winning, and uh, we're gonna take a day or two of break and uh, then get ready to uh, serve as the next lieutenant governor. Jones, you may remember, is in a unique position with this investigation. He, along with the other 15 GOP electors, was sent a target letter by prosecutors telling him he could face criminal charges. 
but Judge Robert McBurney disqualified the DA's office from investigating Jones because DA Fonnie Willis had held a fundraiser for his Democratic opponent. Now it's up to the Prosecuting Attorney's Council of Georgia to appoint another DA to investigate Jones if it determines that's appropriate. Pete Scandalakis, PAC's executive director, has indicated he's in no hurry and could wait until a possible indictment before making a decision on Jones. Next, on Breakdown, an interview with the man overseeing the special purpose grand jury. Um, I might try to be even more prepared because um, if there is a misfire, someone's going to pounce on it. And it's not so much that I worry someone's going to say McBurney is an idiot, as they might say, this isn't being run in a way that's taking it seriously. As always, thanks so very much for listening. We can't do this without you. Breakdown Sound Engineer is Shane Backler, and our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson. Our editors, Jennifer Brett and Dan Kleppel. Our managing editor, Leroy Chapman. And the AJC's editor, Kevin Riley. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.